Our scripture reading this morning is Jeremiah 31, verses 32 to 37. Jeremiah 31, verses 30, uh, 31 to 37, sorry. It's about the new covenant that God brings in Jesus Christ. Let's read together again, starting in verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. And I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day, and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then shall the offspring of Israel cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth below can be explored, then I will cast off all the offspring of Israel from all that the, for all that they have done, declares the Lord. Amen. Pray for God's blessing on his word now. Lord, we do pray as we come to hear from you that you would bless us with understanding, that you would bless us with love, that you would bless us with a deep and lasting joy, that you would bless us with obedience as we hear from you. None of these are things that we can just muster up from our own heart. We need your work and your gifts. And we pray that you would do that as we listen to your word, and you would do this work through your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. This morning our sermon comes from Mark chapter 2, verses 18 to 22. That's Mark chapter 2, verses 18 to 22. Listen to God's word now. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins." By this point in the, the Gospel of Mark, 
people have realized that Jesus is very different. Right? He has a different authority when he teaches. He has power over sickness and Satan. He forgives sins and he even eats with sinners. Jesus is like no one that any of these people have ever met. And you and I, as we read this, know why Jesus is different. Mark has already told us, right? Remember how the gospel begins. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Jesus is the promised Savior and Son of God. He comes with power and authority to bring salvation. The people's, Jesus has been showing the people who he is. He's been showing them his power. He's been showing them his authority. And he's been showing them the salvation that he brings. And people now are starting to get an idea of who he is. See that especially in chapter 2. They start to know him and they don't really like him. They're getting uncomfortable with who he is, right? We saw the Pharisees and the scribes challenge Jesus. Can you really forgive sins? Is it really right for you to hang out with those evil sinners? Well, now in our passage, it's not the leaders. It's just the regular people. They are starting to question Jesus too. And what they don't like is the fact that there is so much joy in Jesus' ministry. That may be surprising to us, but so many people today think the same thing, right? Oh, Jesus is a killjoy. Or church, that's a no-fun zone. Christianity is all about the rules. There's no joy there. It's not even non-Christians who believe that too. We do that too. Sometimes we look at Jesus and the life we have in him and we still lack joy. We still boil it down to the commandments. We still boil it down to the do's and don'ts. No, Jesus is coming and Jesus comes with joy. That's what everybody here needs to hear this morning. Our main idea is that Jesus brings the good news that we can have joy in his presence. Jesus brings the good news that we can have joy in his presence. So we look at that joy that Jesus brings. We're going to see it in three points. We'll see the different practice in verse 18 that causes the problem. We'll see the different person, Jesus himself, verses 19 to 20. And we'll see the different principle of his ministry in verses 21 to 22. Let's look at the different practice. You know, if you did um, one of those man-on-the-street interviews, you know, you've seen those on the news, you walk up to somebody, the camera and the microphone, if you did that on the streets of Capernaum, or one of those other towns in Galilee, if you just went up to somebody and you asked, excuse me, sir, everybody's talking about Jesus, what do you think is so different about Jesus? You might get a surprising answer. He and his disciples don't fast. At least... Not like the really religious people over there. See, that's what Mark says is the problem. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees, ah, they were fasting. And people came and said to Jesus, why are they doing that? But your disciples do not fast. Fasting was a very important part of John the Baptist's life. And the lives of the Pharisees. We know, for instance, in Luke 7, John the Baptist was known for eating no bread and drinking no wine. He was defined by his diet. Well, the Pharisees were very similar. They fasted twice a week. See that in Jesus' parable in Luke 18 about the Pharisee and the tax collector. The Pharisee is proud that he fasts twice a week. 
But fasting itself isn't the problem. Fasting has always been an important part of worshiping God. In the Old Testament, God commanded that all of the Israelites fasted together on the Day of Atonement. Look at Leviticus 16. As you look throughout all of Scripture, you see there are many other examples of fasting, especially when people are confessing serious sin, either their own or the sin of the people, or when they are praying for God's help. We see that in the life of Jesus, too. Jesus fasts. He fasts and he even teaches us how to fast in Matthew 6 on his Sermon on the Mount. So the issue that's here is not just fasting. The issue is whether fasting dominates your life. Think about what fasting is about. It's not a, it's not a joyful time in a certain way, right? It is good and necessary in all of our lives. We need to be doing this as individuals and as a church. But where John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees have gone wrong is they have focused so much on fasting that they have sucked all the joy out of their religion. Their lives are characterized now by fasting and confessing their sins. And by doing that, they went beyond what God had even commanded his people in the Old Testament. As a result, their religion now is hopelessly out of balance because ultimately their view of God was out of balance. If you looked at at their life, you would see there was lots of fasting, but no feasting. I don't mean just an actual feast. I'm saying that they're big on repenting, but they're not big on the joy of the Lord. They could see God's law and God's holiness, but they couldn't see God's grace and God's love. Jesus knows where they've gone wrong. He knows what God had commanded. But he actually points out the fact that there's an even more serious problem in their lives. They don't have joy because they don't know Jesus. If they believed who Jesus is, their lives would be characterized by joy. And that leads us to our second point, the different person, Jesus himself. Look at verses 19 through 20. See, Jesus responds to the people's concern here that he and his disciples don't fast. And the way he responds, it's not by dissing the other people. He's saying, no, it isn't the right time to be doing that. And it isn't the right time to fast because he himself is here. Jesus' presence makes all the difference. Again, look at verses 19 to 20. Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. Jesus' picture here makes a lot of sense. He's describing a wedding. And as we all know, a wedding is a time of joy. Can you imagine what it would be like? You know, maybe the wedding is over, there's the reception, uh, everybody's having a good time, the bride and groom, they're sitting right up at the front. Can you imagine if someone then stood up and said, I want to make a speech. All right, folks, now it's time to fast. Take the food away, turn off the music. Nope, we need to fast now. I mean, can you imagine what it would be like? That would be ridiculous because a wedding is a time of joy. 
Well, Jesus says his entire ministry is like that. His entire ministry is a time of joy. And it's a time of joy because he's here. He is the promised bridegroom. Even as Jesus says this, he knows that this time of joy won't last because he knows what's waiting for him. He knows that he's going to die. He's going to be raised and returned to his father. That's what he means when he says, the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away and they will fast in that day. As he says those words, he's specifically talking about his death. The bridegroom will be taken away. Now that might remind you of what the prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 53. By oppression and judgment, the suffering servant was taken away. In Mark and in Isaiah, there's this picture of violence. There's sadness. And when that day comes, when Jesus is taken away, his disciples will fast again. But Jesus' disciples here in the Gospel of Mark have every reason to rejoice and to feast now because Jesus is with them. Again, his presence makes all the difference. Now that that picture that Jesus uses here, it's a picture of joy, but it's also a picture of waiting and fulfillment. And you know, if you're married, do you remember what waiting for your wedding was like? I do. I couldn't wait to get married. I was glad that we got married. But we had to wait for it. You know, that's what was actually happening in a bigger way in the entire Old Testament. The people were waiting for their bridegroom, Jesus, to come. Everything in the Old Testament was pointing them forward to Jesus, saying, he's coming, you just wait a few more years and he'll be here. You know that with the sacrifices, right? Every sacrifice in the Old Testament pointed forward to Jesus. But that's also true about something like fasting. Fasting was part of that waiting and anticipating Jesus' coming. You might not think about fasting that way, but, but what is it? Well, fasting is about forgiveness. And it's about fellowship with God. That's what we want when we're fasting. And when Jesus comes, what does he bring to us? Well, he brings salvation. What is that? Forgiveness from sins and renewed fellowship with God. That salvation that the people were waiting for comes only through Jesus Christ. Listen to 2 Corinthians 5.19. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. That reconciliation is the forgiveness that Jesus brings, and it's the fellowship through Christ alone. That's what the people were fasting for in the Old Testament. They wanted that salvation. So what they were fasting for is what Jesus himself brings. And even more than that, it's what Jesus himself is. He is our salvation. Well, that means when Jesus comes here in the book of Mark, they don't need to fast. They don't need to fast because they have the fulfillment of what they were waiting for. The people in the Old Testament, they were, they were fasting and waiting for Jesus And we find ourselves in a similar situation today. We also are waiting for Jesus to come. But we're waiting for him to come back. See, we have forgiveness and fellowship with God and Christ. But we are now waiting for Jesus to return. Because he's not leaving us when he comes back again. No. No. 
we will have perfect fellowship with God forever. If we want to use that wedding imagery again, our Christian lives are kind of like a wedding where the bridegroom has stepped out for a little while. No, we, we still have his blessing. We even have his presence by his spirit. But it's going to be so much better when Jesus, the bridegroom, returns. And when the feast is going to be there. We're going to be feasting in his presence at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Look at Revelation. That is where we are going. Our lives now are characterized by fasting because Jesus isn't here. He isn't here in his body. But do you realize that when we see Jesus face to face, when we are actually in heaven, there is no fasting? There is no fasting in heaven. None whatsoever. And why is that? Because we will have the person we have been waiting for. We will have Jesus. We will have the Father. We have the Holy Spirit. We will be in the presence of God. And that brings eternal joy. When Jesus is talking about fasting here, he is pointing the people of his own day toward himself. And he's doing that for us as well. He's making a bigger point. If you put yourself in the shoes of the people back then, they looked at Jesus and they said, you know, maybe maybe you're just being a liberal, right? The real conservative, the real holy people over here fast a lot. Maybe you're just being liberal or, or maybe you're trying to kind of define yourself, get out of the shadow of John the Baptist and the Pharisees. That's not the point at all. That's not the point at all. Jesus says, no, no, you're wrong. Don't look at them. Look at me. Jesus says that his presence makes all the difference. It marks a new change in the life of God's people. He brings his people now in the gospel of Mark into a new time of joy. Jesus says that joy is because of his presence. Actually, that joy is essential to the life of his followers. Jesus' presence makes all the difference. But it's so much bigger than fasting. Fasting is just really one example. Jesus' ministry and the life of his followers is going to be so much different from what the people were ever expecting. That's really what we see third as we look at the different principle of Jesus' ministry in verses 21 to 22. Jesus is making the people here think bigger about the newness of, of all of his work. And the way he does that is by by telling them two parables, two stories that have the same message. He says, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. Second parable, no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins and the wine is destroyed And so are the skins, but new wine is for new wineskins. Now, I do not sow. I don't sow at all, and I don't really know much about wine, but Jesus' pictures here still make sense to me, right? His point is that the new doesn't fit with the old. In fact, if you try to put those two things together, you're going to ruin them. They don't fit. What Jesus is doing is new. And what has come before him is old. 
In these words here, Jesus is describing the basic difference between the Old and New Testaments and how he makes that difference. Jesus is the difference between the New Covenant and the Old Covenant. And because he makes that difference in his life, in his life, his death, his resurrection, you shouldn't expect his ministry or the life of his disciples to look like the Old of the Old Testament. There's a new era starting here in Jesus Christ. We read from Jeremiah 31 earlier, which describes the new covenant. The covenant in Jesus' blood. We'll be celebrating the Lord's Supper. That's what we're doing. We are living in the new covenant, and that is what Jesus is describing here in his words. But Jesus isn't throwing out the Old Testament, not at all. Look at Jesus' picture here. You can see it. There's a similarity in each case, right? It's two pieces of cloth. And it's still wine and wineskins. So Jesus' ministry in in our lives now as believers, they're in line with the Old Testament. Just give an example. All believers, old and new, are saved by Jesus. No other way. And all believers, old and new, have the same basic commandments, right? Love God and love your neighbor. But Jesus has fulfilled the Old Testament, so things are different for us. To use Jesus' own words then, the new wine that he has brought, the new blessing, the new newness of his work needs to be in new wineskins. It will look different now. Jesus' salvation leads to changes in the New Testament. Think about what we are doing here. We worship God differently now. We're not in the temple. We're sitting here in a dance studio worshiping God. And our lives as a church and as people have greater freedom. We have the Spirit in greater measure. All of these changes and more are brought about by Jesus and his work. Let me just use the example of fasting for a minute. That's what Jesus is is focused on here. We fast today as New Testament believers very similarly, similarly to what believers in the Old Testament did, right? But even something like fasting has been changed by Jesus. We still do a similar thing. We don't eat or we drink it. Instead, we pray. I guess the difference is we don't wear sackcloth and sit in the ashes. At least I don't. Um, and we're still, we're still fasting for the same goal. right? We're fasting to seek forgiveness and to ask for God's help. But now... We fast in a different light. We fast in the light of what Christ has done. We fast now with confidence, so much more confidence than any believer in the Old Testament because we know that our forgiveness was accomplished already by Jesus Christ on the cross. We're not looking forward to it. We're looking back at it. And when we pray for God's help, we know that Christ is interceding for us right now. He is praying for us and those very needs that we are praying and fasting for. There is old and new in Jesus' ministry, even with an example like fasting. So the people, as they saw Jesus, they focused on fasting and they said, why is there such a big difference? Why is there such a big difference in your life? And Jesus is saying it's so much bigger than just one thing. Everything about what I'm bringing, everything about what I'm doing is different. Now you might be thinking to yourself at this point, it sounds like Jesus is warning us not to go back to the old things of the Old Testament. I know, though, that I'm not tempted to sacrifice 
animals anymore like we're commanded to in the Old Testament. But you just have to look at the book of Hebrews, right? To know that this was a problem for many early Christians. They did not understand that difference between Jesus and the New Testament and the Old Testament. They did not understand the uniqueness of Jesus Christ and how he fulfilled the Old Testament. And it might be true that this morning um, you probably are not tempted to follow many of the Old Testament laws, but we still struggle. I think we still all struggle with that understanding of the uniqueness of Jesus and his work. And even more than understanding the uniqueness, we really struggle with the joy that comes from that. The joy that comes from being in his presence. Uh, It's been said that Christians should be the most joyful people in the entire world. That's true. We have everlasting joy in the presence of God, but I'm not always sure that we believe that. And I think it's also been said that Reformed Christians like us can have a, a bad reputation, right, of being very serious people, not really showing or even sometimes having that kind of joy that we actually have in Jesus. But the gospel shows us that we can have and show a deep joy in all circumstances. Think about the joy in the Old Testament just for a second. Go read the Psalms, right? See the amazing joy of God's people in the Old Testament. Do not ever believe that the Old Testament is a bunch of rules or just about God's law. No, go read the Psalms. Look at the joy and the joy that even comes from being in God's law. Psalm 19, Psalm 16, Psalm 97, Psalm 92, Psalm 150. I mean, there are so many. We could just list them. There is so much joy in the Old Testament. And that is at a time of types and shadows where they're looking forward to Jesus. Well, we have the fulfillment now, right? We have Jesus himself. We have an even greater measure of God's presence with us through his spirit because of the work of Jesus Christ. And that fulfillment, that new reality brings joy. But we also know that being joyful needs some work, right? Think about what Paul commands. He says to rejoice always. And he says, and again I say, rejoice. That's a command. That's a command for us to grow in our rejoicing. But look at this. Even in that command to rejoice, Paul is saying, be who you are, right? We have a deep abiding joy in Jesus. We need to grow in it. We need to obey that command. But joy characterizes the Christian life. And God helps us to grow in that joy in the presence of himself. Think about what he's done. He has actually built things into our experience as believers now. Regular reminders and kind of refueling stations for our joy. What am I talking about? I think you can probably guess. One of them is weekly worship. Right now, being in God's presence together. It's true, worship is a time to reflect on our sin. That's why we confess our sin. But it's a time of joy. It's a time of joy as we look at our salvation in Christ. And as we praise God, as we actually are standing in his presence. In his presence there is fullness of joy, Psalm 16. And as we meet together 
in God's presence for worship, God's at work in you. God's at work in all of us to increase our joy. He is meeting with us in Christ and he is giving us these little foretastes of heaven. He's feeding us. He's teaching us. He is increasing our joy. So weekly worship is a refueling station for your soul to grow in joy. But also as part of our worship, God has given us a feast of joy as well, right? It's the Lord's Supper right in front of us, what we're going to celebrate today. When we come to the Lord's Supper, we are remembering the source of our joy, Jesus and his work. And we are also receiving more joy from Jesus as part of his ongoing work in our lives. Jesus is telling us, value these things. Worship, come into my presence and you will receive joy. Let me ask a question though to apply this to our lives. Is our worship, is our life as a church, are our individual lives marked by the joy of Jesus? Would someone who comes to visit our church know that we are truly joyful? If someone got to know you very well, would they know that what defines you is a joy that they can't describe? You know, it's true, as we think about that question, it's true that there's, you know, people have a certain expectation of what showing joy might look like, right? You can think of kind of the megachurch experience. That's not what I'm talking about. That's not joy. I'm talking about a joy that lasts in all circumstances, a joy that is deep, and abiding, when someone comes to visit us, or when someone gets to know you, when they hear us singing, do they hear joy? When they hear us praying, do they hear joy? Do they hear it when we talk about Christ and his work? Do they see it transforming our lives, especially in the hard circumstances? That's the challenge. Because we have the good news. We have the good news of Jesus Christ that brings joy to us. Jesus has paid for all of our sins. He has brought us back to God. That leads to joy. Yes, we still sin. And yes, we are waiting for Jesus to return and our fellowship then will be made complete. But the gospel is good news of great joy for right now. Is that our testimony to the world. Is that our testimony to one another? Jesus says he will make that so. Our lives are characterized by joy because our lives are characterized by Jesus' presence. His presence now, through his spirit, brings great joy. And his presence with us eternally will make all the difference forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, we see that you are a God of joy. You are a God who has brought us out of our sadness and our sin, our separation from you, and you have brought us to be those who can stand forgiven, those who are now part of your family. 
Lord, the work of Jesus Christ for us is incredible to, to realize. And Lord, we pray that we would grow in joy as we see what you have done for us and what you have promised you will do for us. Lord, we do pray that joy would characterize our lives, especially in our times of suffering, that we would rely on you and know that you will never leave us or forsake us, and that what we have now is just a foretaste of the great blessing that we will have when you come to take us back to be with yourself. Sustain us in our Christian walk and sustain us in our joy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.